you can open your Bibles up to Ephesians 3. That's where we'll be this morning. Ephesians 3. Now, I'm not, I'm not naturally wired or gifted to build things or repair things with my own two hands. And some of you know that quite well. Mike Nichols knows that quite well. Others do as well. But if you give me instructions, and they're very clear, I can generally follow them if they're, if they're laid out pretty well. But one of the things I've discovered over the last few years when there are problems at my home with the, the you know, whatever it may be around the house, things that need to be fixed, one of the things I've discovered is that you can find online videos on YouTube or other places where an expert will walk you through what you're trying to do step by step and will talk you through it as he's demonstrating it for you. And it's magnificent. I mean, you can go and type in almost any home repair or project and find an expert willing to explain it to you just to get views on YouTube. It's awesome. So I've tried this several times and been successful. I've fixed my washer, I fixed my dryer, and I built the perfect chipmunk trap <laughs> from a video I saw online. And it was successful. And that's a story I will tell at a different time. But what's really helpful is it's fantastic to not just read about it, right? Not just get the instructions on a piece of paper and read about it, but it is fantastic to watch an expert walk you through it, and explain it to you while demonstrating it to you. And this morning, in Ephesians 3, we are going to watch an expert. That's what we're doing. He's going to give us building instructions as he demonstrates to us through his ministry what building the church actually looks like. So if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians 3 this morning, I want you to actually look back in Ephesians 2 at the very end of the chapter, verse 19, verses 19 through 22. We studied these last week, and if you'll remember, before I read them, Paul finishes this section, 11 through 22, by talking about the building up of the church. This is what's happening in the body. This is the goal of Christ bringing us diversity together, Jew and Gentile, so that we can be built up into a dwelling place for God. Verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And he continues that household metaphor there. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, and everything else is aligned to him. Now, that building process, we talked last week about how Paul will explain that in some detail in Ephesians chapter 4, and I can't wait to get to that section. But this morning in chapter 3, he's going to tell us about his role in this process. I mean, Paul obviously was a major piece of the foundation and of the development of the church. I mean, he was, he was an apostle. 
He was part of the foundation, and it was built on his ministry, and we're still receiving benefit from his ministry through the letters that he wrote that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and that we have. And here in this section, verses 1 to 13, he's going to tell us about his ministry as an apostle. He's going to describe that to us and demonstrate to us what he did and how he was involved in this. And I think you and I can think of this as watching a master carpenter go about his work. He's telling us about it, and we can glean how to build the church from what Paul is giving us here. We're not apostles. No one in this room is an apostle, but we can learn a lot from watching one this morning. So this morning in Ephesians 3, 1 to 13, we're going to see three activities for us to build the church, God's church. Three activities for us to undertake in order to build God's church. The first one of these is found in verses 1 through 7. To build God's church, you and I need to recognize our role and our message. So, building off of chapter 2 and the explanation of the church that he gives there, he heads into chapter 3. And in verse 1, you can notice here, look there, it ends, verse 1 ends with a hyphen, which is interesting. And so what you've got is, Paul starts to do something. He starts to pray here. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then it's like he's thinking about them being Gentiles and the ministry that he has to them as Gentiles. And then he goes on this digression or this excursion. It's like a rabbit trail a little bit in verses 2 through 13. And he he describes his ministry to them as Gentiles in verses 2 through 13. And then he goes back to his prayer. Look at verse 14. For this reason, right? So it's like he picks up the same language and he goes back and he prays what he was originally intending to pray for them. And so verses 2 2 through 13 describe his ministry among them to us. And we can learn a lot from it. But in verse 1, he's clearly building off of the message that he's given us in chapter 2. He's talking about our identity corporately as the church. And his role in all of this is pretty specific. Look how he identifies himself and his ministry in verse 1. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I mean, Paul does not think he's the center of attention at all. He understands that he's in the situation he's in because of the Lord, because of his commitment to the Lord, and he sees his ministry as being done for them. He's focused on them. It's for their good. I mean, this flows over into how he understands his role, and this is how we should understand our role as well. Look at verse 2, the way he describes himself, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. And then look down at verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. He's a steward and he's a minister. The word minister in verse 7, if you were to look at that in Greek or hear it said in Greek, you would understand it's it's the word deacon. And a deacon in the church is a servant. It's someone who, who works for the good of others in the church. And the idea of a steward, having a stewardship, is like a household administrator. You think of it as a butler. We don't often have butlers here in the U.S. anymore, if ever. But that's kind of the idea here, right? It's someone who manages someone else's house. He's not the owner, but he takes care of it on behalf of the owner. 
He's responsible. He manages what belongs to the master of the house. That's a beautiful illustration for how Paul understands himself and how we should understand ourselves and our ministry. Look at the rest of verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, the household administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Again, he's doing this on behalf of the master for them. For their benefit. And so, what specifically was Paul stewarding? I mean, what was he managing on behalf of the Gentiles for the master? Look at verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And so, being a steward of God's grace means Paul was stewarding, administrating, passing along a mystery. And our first point here is to recognize our role and our message, and the mystery is the message. These two are tied together. Your role as a steward is to pass along the mystery, which is the message that Paul had received and which we have received. And so Paul had received this mystery from the Lord by revelation, and now he was a responsible steward to pass that along. Look at verses 4 and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So he's like, look, I understand this mystery. I know what this is. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, of whom Paul was one, an apostle, by the Spirit. So what is the mystery? I mean, that's the key question, right? That's the heart of the message. Paul's a steward. He's a servant for the Gentiles, and he has this this message that is summarized by the word mystery. Well, what's the mystery? Well, when we think of a mystery, we think of maybe a a spy thriller or a novel. We think of a, a TV show where something that is unknown needs to be solved. And so we have to work through investigation to solve this mystery. But that's not how Paul is using the word mystery here. You can see in verse 5 how he explains it. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but it has now been revealed. And so in the Bible, a mystery is something that was unknown before, but now God has made it known. Now it's clear. And it's not something that we can figure out on our own through investigation, through our own ability and our own smarts. And Paul understood that. It was made known by the revelation of God. It was revealed. It was given as a gift of grace to Paul. It wasn't known in other generations before. People really didn't understand this. But now Paul says, look, now it's become clear. And this is the message that I have, this mystery God has opened it up to me, and it's the heart of my ministry. So what what is it? Well, Paul defines it for us. Look at verse 6. This mystery is, nice and clear, right? He's going to tell us. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there are three parts to this mystery, three key elements to the mystery. Let's look at them in order as they come. First of all, they all have to do with the Gentiles, but the first part of this is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. We've already seen in Ephesians 
that we've all been adopted into God's family as his children. And now we have an inheritance because we're his children. We've been adopted in, and so we have an inheritance. We're heirs through Christ. And of course, that idea goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God promised to bless all the nations of the earth through the seed of Abraham, through his line, all the way back in Genesis 12. And so Paul is saying, look, this is the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 12. And this is something new that has been revealed here. It's always been God's intention, but it's not been clear, abundantly clear before, because it wasn't clear to Abraham that the Gentiles would be considered fellow heirs, children of equal status before God. But that's clear now. I mean, listen to Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And who are his offspring? Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You and I, in one sense, are children of Abraham by faith, and we're recipients of this promise. We are fellow heirs with him of equal status before God. And we're fellow heirs and children of Abraham by faith because of Jesus Christ. That's the first element of this mystery. That was revealed. The second element is that the Gentiles are members of the same body. I mean, we've already seen this. Look back at chapter 2, verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body. Verse 19. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jews and Gentiles through faith in Christ are the same members of the body, one new man. They have been brought together. The third element in verse 6, they are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And what does that mean? I think ultimately it means that Gentiles are receiving the new covenant, the promise of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, and that God would dwell within them and change their hearts by his Spirit. So all of these Paul is saying these were unknown before, but now they're clear and now they're made known. So why? Why have these come to light now? In what sense were these previously unknown, but now they're known? What has brought clarity? Look at how he ends verse 6. Through the gospel. This is the foundation of this mystery. This is why it's clear now. This has brought all of it to light. None of this could be true without the gospel. The work of Jesus Christ, his death, his life, his death, his resurrection, his work secures all these benefits for you and I. And the mystery is revealed. It's opened up when Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And that's exactly what Paul is called to do. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And so what Paul is saying here 
This is my role. I'm a steward. I've been given a mystery. And the mystery is the message. And the message is the gospel. And so this gospel that I have been made a servant of is the very heart of my ministry. And this gospel is what the church is built on. It's not built apart from this message of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to just preach this gospel to unbelievers and once they get saved, sort of move on to better things. This gospel is the heart of the ministry for believers. This is the heart of what needs to happen. This is the lifeblood of how the church grows and matures. This is what must be the center of our ministry to one another. We need to know this gospel, know the benefits that come from this gospel, and talk about it with one another and proclaim it and apply it. This is how we grow. This is the start. This is the middle. This is the finish. The work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is our identity. We are centered on it. And that's why the second activity must take place for the church to grow. We have to fulfill our assignment. So we recognize our role. We've been given a message, a mystery. Now it's clear. It's the gospel. We know our role, and then we fulfill our assignment for the church to grow. This is in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of of Christ. So you can see here Paul's assignment, his his mission was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we'll talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ in just a second. But look how Paul understands his role in this task, right? Look look how he describes himself. He is the very least of all the saints. And I, I don't think he's just being overly humble here. And, you know, abnormally self-deprecating here to try to get our sympathy. Oh, I'm the worst sinner. Oh, no, you're not, Paul. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's what he's looking for here. I think this is, this is helpful in understanding the, the dramatic grace that we have been given. I mean, he really understands and thinks, man, I, I was a terrible sinner. Look what I did. I mean, remember, in Paul's life, he was persecuting and killing Christians before he met Jesus on that road, before he was saved. And so what we can glean from this is Paul was deeply aware of his own unworthiness and of his own sin. And that's helpful because he understands communicating this message as a a high privilege. To someone like me, I have received the grace of God and I am able to then talk about this and expound this and explain this to people. The opportunity to speak of God's work and this mystery is a gift of grace. And that's helpful for us, right? Because do you and I think of this opportunity to speak of this mystery? I mean, it's clear now. We have it. We know this gospel message. It's all here for us. And now we have the the beauty of being able to look back in the Old Testament and see how it was promised and how it was fulfilled and the whole thing testifies to Christ. And so we've got this message. But do we think of ourselves as unworthy sinners who have been given an incredible gift of grace to just be able to know this and talk about this? 
I mean, we've been redeemed from slavery to sin. We've been bought out of our chains. But not only have we been bought out of our chains, now we have been made messengers of the Redeemer and of the King, and we have the opportunity to speak of his grace and his work among us. And I think I too often just think of this as a burden or as an inconvenience, you know? Oh, man, it's kind of awkward and it's tough to talk about this. I mean, even among other believers, it's kind of weird to bring the gospel to bear on somebody's life and to, at times to encourage them and to challenge them with, with the truths of the gospel. And certainly to unbelievers, it's difficult at times. But Paul thinks of this as a distinct honor and a privilege. You know, we, we have, Bethany and I have four kids, and with the birth of each one of our kids, it was, there were great levels of excitement. None more than others, right? All four. Man, this is awesome. And it was, it was exciting because we knew we'd been given a gift of grace. We were not deserving of this opportunity to have children. And so talking about it and communicating this to others was not a burden. It wasn't a chore for us to do because we understood this is a gift of grace from God. And so this is a joy to announce this to other people. And I know that's true for any of you that have kids. We wanted to share this. We don't want to keep it to ourselves, right? We want to talk about it. And I think maybe we don't think of preaching Christ and the gospel to others as a gift of grace, and we think of it as a burden because we really don't understand the second part of this verse. What was Paul proclaiming? Specifically, he was talking about the unsearchable riches of Christ. He was proclaiming the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ. What are these? Well, the riches of Christ are the qualities that he possesses. It's who he is. It's the work that he has done. And now we have received benefits from him because of the work that he has done. He shares those benefits with those who are in him, who are united with him. We have those benefits now. And we've looked at some of those back in chapter 1. If you go back this afternoon and, and run through those things in verses 3 to 14, Paul just goes on and on about the work of Christ and the benefits we have. We've been adopted. We've been chosen. We've been united with him. Where we have an inheritance in him. But here, what he's saying, the unsearchable riches of Christ, is that was only the beginning. What I talked about there, that's, that's the starting point. But there's no end to this. It just keeps going. And it keeps getting deeper and deeper. You can never plumb the depths of the work of Christ. One Puritan author who I love said it this way. Every day we may see some new thing in Christ. His love hath neither brim nor bottom. And so I asked myself this question. And I ask you too. Did, I, did you spend any time this past week specifically searching out the depths of the love of Christ? Did you spend any time, did I spend any time pondering the benefits of the riches of Jesus Christ? Did I think about the wealth that is at my disposal because of what he has done? The benefits of being in him, united to him. I mean, trying to reach the bottom of his love for us is like going 
and walking to the ocean every morning of your life with a spoon in your hand and taking a bit of water out of that with that spoon and going and dumping it on the sand and then going back the next morning and imagining that you are going to empty out the ocean. You could do that for millennium upon millennium and never reach the bottom of the love of Christ. And that's what he's saying here. It's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. There is no brim or bottom. It just keeps going and going. And the deeper you dive into it, the more you understand and the more you're amazed by it. And because Paul understands the riches of Christ is unsearchable and bottomless, then he says, I'm going to proclaim these things. I'm going to talk about them. And I'm going to talk about them to believers and unbelievers alike. This is going to be a theme of my ministry, and it should be a theme of our ministry to one another. And part of proclaiming the riches of Christ, talking about his love for us, but then fitting that love into the ultimate plan that God has for all of creation and the ultimate plan he has for the church. And that's our third activity. Highlight God's purpose for the church. This is how the church grows. We recognize our role and message. We fulfill our assignment. And as we're fulfilling that assignment, we highlight God's big picture purposes for the church. And this is in verses 9 through 13. Look at verse 9. This follows right on the heels of what he said in verse 8. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is not an additional assignment, right? It's not like, oh, proclaim Christ and do this. This is the result of proclaiming Christ. This is what happens. You bring to light God's purposes, his plan for all of creation. It was a mystery hidden, but now he's made it revealed. So what's the purpose? What's the mystery? How is it made known? Look at verse 10. So that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So God's purpose in revealing the mystery, the gospel, now to Paul and to others was to highlight God's wisdom. It's to put his wisdom on display. It's to honor him. It's to bring glory to his character. But notice how his wisdom is described here. It's the manifold wisdom of God. What a great description. One of my favorite, our favorite times of year is fall. Now, unfortunately, in Michigan, fall is like half a day. And it goes from summer to nine inches of snow. But we like the half a day that we get of fall. And one of the reasons we love fall is the changing of the leaves. It's beautiful. Now, what makes that so wonderful? Well, what is so wonderful about the leaves changing is the different shades of color that you get. It's beautiful. It's hard to take your eyes off of it. When when you're looking out on a landscape and you see orange and red and yellow and purple, and it's all popping in different shades and tones, maybe the sun is coming down in the evening, and highlighting those colors. And what makes it so wonderful and so beautiful is the diversity of the colors all at once. It's magnificent. And that's the idea of diversity that he's using here. It's the manifold wisdom of God. It's the diversity of the wisdom of God. From any angle, from any aspect, God's wisdom 
His ability to use knowledge for his ends is put on display. It's highlighted. Well, how is it highlighted? It's through the church. That's his goal for the church, to put his wisdom on display. And who is he putting it on display for? I mean, if we're the ones participating, if we are the bride and we are the church, who is he putting his wisdom on display for? Look at the rest of this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Fascinating, right? I don't often think about this. Who are these rulers and authorities? Well, these are the heavenly beings. It's the angels and the demons. So God, through the church, is putting his wisdom on display and showing it to the angels and the demons. Fascinating. Why doesn't he just tell them directly about his wisdom? Why doesn't he just explain it to them? Instead, he puts it on display. It's like a show in high definition. And he's having them sit down and watch the television of the church, putting his wisdom on display. Well, all of that fits with his overall purpose. Look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what is that eternal purpose? Go back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. One page back. Here it is. Here's why God does all that he does, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here it is to unite all things in him. And notice here things in heaven and things on earth. So God's plan for all of creation is to unite everything under the authority of Christ and to honor Christ through all of that. Things that were once apart and were divided, he brings together and they submit to Christ. And he does that with things on earth and things in heaven. Well, the church is on earth. How has he done that in the church? He's done that by bringing people that are so different and so separate together, Jews and Gentiles, and he's brought them into one body together to live in unity. And that unity testifies to God's wisdom and his power and his authority, and it displays that to the heavenly beings. And so they're watching this unfold when the church lives in unity and peace and harmony, and they're, they're seeing that the things on earth are beginning to be brought together under the authority of Christ. And so when they see that, what do they realize? Well, they realize that the church is just the appetizer. This is the beginning. That one day, not only the things on earth, but the things in heaven are going to be brought under the authority of Christ. And he's going to be everything, all in all. And the church testifies to the heavenly beings, both angels and demons, that every person, every being will one day submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything will be brought to harmony under him. Some to eternal punishment and some to life forever with him. And so the church right now is a testimony that God's purposes will be done. He's going to bring this plan to completion, and we are the appetizer of that and the first pilot episode of that. We are that testimony when we live in unity around Christ. 
Verse 12 tells us what that looks like. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is the present experience of us in the church. We come together to Christ, speak the gospel to one another, come into his presence and grow together because we're united with him in the gospel. And so this is one of the activities that builds the church. We highlight God's purpose for the church. Why, is, why does this build the church up? I mean, these are pretty cosmic, big plans, but why do we need to think about this? Because ultimately, we need to think about what we are here for. Why were we created? Why has the church been created? What are we doing here this morning? Why does Woodhaven Bible Church exist? We need to get our bearings. We need to see the end game. Because when you see the end goal, it starts to put everything that's happening day to day in perspective. And it becomes much easier to live in unity with one another when we know that God's plan is working and he's going to bring everything to completion. So let's live in light of that now. Certainly we're here to fulfill the Great Commission and to see more people, Jews and Gentiles, brought into this fellowship. But they're brought into this fellowship so that ultimately they, too, can testify to the manifold wisdom of God and see his plan completed where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, here's the thing. We often do a pretty poor job of this in the church, don't we? I do, too. We do not testify often to the wisdom of God. But... Let me encourage you, every little act of love, every tiny sacrificial service moment that you participate in, every instance of people who are from completely different backgrounds, different walks of life, different socioeconomic situations, people who there is no way they would be friends or come together, but when that happens in the church, those little moments that testifies to the wisdom of God, and it shows that his plan is advancing, and it will one day be complete. Proclaims the wisdom of God and the authority of Christ. And he sees those things and rejoices in those things. So do the heavenly beings. They see it as well. And so when you have that perspective on the purpose of the church, then daily circumstances and difficulties are put in a whole new light. And look at what, how Paul demonstrates this in verse 13. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Of course, this goes all the way back to verse 1. I mean, how does Paul describe himself there? He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. I mean, Paul's really going through it right here, right? I mean, he's in prison. He is suffering but he's suffering because of the ministry that he's fulfilling, because he's preaching the gospel, because he's proclaiming to Jews and Gentiles, you are no longer under the law, but now you are united in one new man in Christ, and you need to live together in harmony and peace. And that testifies to the authority of Christ. And so when he's able to see that big picture, Verse 13 helps us to understand he puts his circumstances in a whole new light and a whole new perspective. I mean, he's in prison, and it's not a cushy prison, not a nice deal. Puts it in a new perspective. He sees his suffering as happening for their benefit, for their glory, 
so that they will know Christ better and they will demonstrate the wisdom of God in a clearer way. This has brought them glory. His suffering has brought them glory, so they need to view it from that perspective as well, from the big picture perspective of the purpose of the church. So I think what Paul's saying in verse 13 is, look, so if you understand what I've been describing about ministry here, then this will put my imprisonment in a whole new light. And you can actually say, man, Paul, in some sense, we're, we're glad you're there. You know, we'd love for you to be out, but you have been doing the work of ministry, proclaiming Christ so that others will know and God will be glorified. And so there is a sense in which we can say, man, we rejoice in that. That's what we're here for anyway. So it changes our perspective on circumstances and suffering and difficulty. So how do we participate in building the church? How are we built together? Let's follow the example of Paul here. Recognize your role. We're stewards. We're servants. It's not about us. Understand our message. We've been given this mystery, this gospel. It is clear to us, so let's talk about it. Let's proclaim it. Let's live it out. Fulfill our assignment. Talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ with great joy and passion. And then highlight God's purpose for the church, both in our words and in our actions. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. The way we respond to circumstances highlights God's purpose for the church. And ultimately, it's our privilege to be involved in this. It is a gift of grace. Paul says this over and over again. I have been given, I'm a steward of God's grace, he says in verse 2. Verse 7, a minister according to the gift of God's grace. We're only a part of this. We only have this distinct honor and privilege because of the grace that we've been given. So let's rejoice in it and live it out. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious to us to take the least of all saints, the biggest sinners, Lord. As we look at our own lives, we see rebellion, we see wickedness, we see evil in our hearts, Lord. We want our own way, we want to be our own authority. We've rejected you, the creator, the sustainer, the God who made everything good for our benefit and our delight so that we would return our praise to you, the giver of all good gifts. We have rejected that. And yet you have pursued us. You sent your son to bring us back to you, to free us from sin and enslavement to sin. And through him, we are free. We've received your grace. But even beyond that, we have received the message of the gospel. And now we are ambassadors and messengers who share that message with one another and others. So I pray that we would plumb the depths of the unsearchable riches of Christ, and then we would live that out and speak of those things to one another and to the world around us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.